Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 90. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Mike Luoma. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we dive into it, pull it apart, look at what works, what doesn't, and try to transform the raw idea into... Literary gold. Gold. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And and literary gold (laughs) is always the goal. And somehow, Mike, we always end up with a big ass pile of it sitting all around the virtual studios. I love that thing about this show. We make Rumpelstiltskin jealous. Yes, exactly. See, and it's, <laughs> it's like we need to do like an uptown funk version for the round table somehow. And it's it's not that we make a dragon jealous. We make Rumpelstiltskin jealous. I like it. I like it. <laughs> ah, Mike Luoma, dude, thanks for coming back and joining me, man. I'm pumped to brainstorm yet another fabulous tale with you, sir. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Dave. This is always a lot of fun and always get the creative juices flowing and get me working on my own stuff afterwards. <laughs> and I want to hear about that stuff, dude, because I know you've got stuff in the works. But before we do that, let's let's bring back our guest host and and start this thing off proper, fresh from his 20 minutes with of just seven days ago. Dear friends, please welcome for the third time here at the round table, constantly setting the bar uh, for, for guest hosts everywhere. Please welcome back Jay Daniel Scheuer. Dan, dude, it has always been a delight having you from that very first episode of the round table and and I, I'm, I'm, I'm literally giddy on the inside at the prospect of brainstorming another story with you, sir. Thanks for making the time. Well, thanks for having me. I tell you, when you called me for that first one, I thought it was the baddiest fucking idea I'd ever heard. <laughs> and that's it's one of the best writing podcasts in the world. It's really fabulous. Uh, you're a gentleman, sir. Thank you. And yeah, it, it was it was pretty out there, pretty fringe. And, and somehow somehow we made it work. And I think that's due in large part to the fabulous guest hosts we've had to, to sort of guide us through this process and give us a little street cred. So gratitude, man, much gratitude all the way around. Likewise. So, uh, Dan, now you recently moved to Oregon, and mm-hmm. that has connected you with a whole different group of uh, a local community, and has unlocked some opportunities. I know for you, so I'm I'm just going to ask Dan, what's coming up for you, man? Because I know the Dan Sawyer story is far from over. Uh, uh, so what's coming up in the next few chapters? Well, at least assuming that I don't get clobbered with a tsunami or something. Yeah, well, there's always I that. Do live, well, I do live right near the Cascadia subduction zone. So it's always a risk. See, there um, you go. It's, it'll, that'll just be an intriguing <laughs> plot twist. Exactly. <laughs> oh, um, at the moment, I am in a story bundle called Dark Justice. It's Ooh. a bunch of very dark, chewy, hard-boiled, and other sorts of mysteries um, featuring people like Chris Nelscott, Julie Heisey, David DeLee, Libby Fisher-Hellman, Lawrence Block. Whoa. Um and several others at really, really top shelf mystery writers. That's now, when I'm, you say a bundle, what does that I'm, mean? I'm, I'm really happy that I managed to slide in into the radar. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was no sliding going on, man. You earned your seat at the table on that one. But, but what's a bundle? 
Um, you basically pay X amount of dollars and you get a whole shitload of books. Ooh. Um, in, in the case of Story Bundle, I think it's like 10 bucks for the main bundle and an extra five for the extended bundle. And you can pay more if you want to. Um, but uh, there's 10 books in all and you can buy them either just the featured five or the whole thing. Wow. That's a great deal. That's awesome. And, it and really a sterling is. group of, of gathered writers and stories. That's outstanding. Yep. And, and it's DRM-free multi-format, so they, you get uh, DRM-free versions of all the books in both EPUB and Mobi format, so it'll load onto your Kindle or your Kobo or your iPhone or whatever. Making it a dead simple. Dead simple. Excellent. How can how can our listeners, after, after hearing that that roster of awesomeness and the fact that it's dark and chewy, uh, uh, how, how can our listeners get a hold of that? Go to storybundle.com and uh, right up at the top, you'll see there's two bundles running all the time. Click on the Dark Justice bundle. Dark and, Justice. Uh, and grab it. Very cool. And yes. grab it while the getting's good because it only lasts for 21 days. They're only up there. Oh, okay. So it's a limited time offer. All right, friends, get on that, man. That's awesome. Now, I know that that's a very cool chapter in the story of J. Daniel Sawyer, but I know that's not the only thing you got going on. Well, I've got... The uh, fiction podcast is going again, so Free Will and Other Compulsions is near future science fiction political thriller thing. <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's going again in all its full cast goodness. I've got a uh, bi-weekly podcast called The Next 10,000 Hours, which deals with coping with the business thing after you've got the basics of professional level craft down. Okay. Just finishing up book three in the Suave Rob series, which is a series about a far future transsexual evil Knievel who gets up to all sorts of interesting shit. Surfing supernovas, <laughs> rescu surfing supernovas rescuing children from Poseidon worshiping cults at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, all sorts of fun stuff. <laughs> uh, and uh, I just released the seventh book in the Clark Lantham mystery series, the first book of which is featured in the bundle. And it's called Blood and Weeds, and it's about a child kidnapping ring and a corrupt San Francisco college administrator and, uh, and, and the intersection of child kidnapper, the corrupt college administrator, and uh, really cutting-edge biotech. Okay. Um, all right. I was waiting for where the weird was, because one thing about all of the Lantham novels is is that wrapped around some beautiful, intricate, deep and, and very, very authentic crime. There's always a little something weird and a little something weird is always completely based in reality. It's just the real edge stuff that most people don't know about yet. Which is very, very cool. All right, so that just came out. Um, what about convention appearances? Are you making any uh, con appearances in the coming months or years? I might show up to Balticon this year, but I'm not holding my breath. Um, oh, dear. Well, it's, <laughs> it's a long the back haul. Of beyond now. It's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a lot longer getting from the Oregon coast to Baltimore than it is getting from San Francisco <laughs> to Baltimore. The fact that you've even made it at all, Dan, is a testament to your commitment to the craft, dude. So, um, so I don't actually know if there will be any convention appearances in 2016, but I'm thinking about Balticon and I'm thinking about Oricon. Very um, cool. 2017, there will be convention appearances for sure. Excellent. Why is that? Well, because by then... Um, It'll be time. <laughs> There'll be too many years when I haven't been at one. That's right. Got to got to keep your face and your voice out there in the world. Very cool. Well, let me let me turn the mic over 
to Mike because <laughs> I'd never get tired of saying that. <laughs> Mike Luoma, uh, uh, the world has been good to you with your your Alibi Jones series and the Vatican Assassin series and Glow in the Dark Radio where you podcast your fiction, which is awesome. Uh, uh, what's uh, what's what's new in the in the world of Mike Luoma? Well, the most recent release is uh, Red Hot Number Two, a comic book introducing yes! Red Hot Number Two. That's right. It's the uh, the second book in the Red Hot series, and it took a little while to get to this one because, unfortunately, my artist and co-creator on the first book, Reese Apgwin, decided he wanted to actually live life as a real scientist, which is his calling, and oh wow, couldn't couldn't keep drawing the book, so. Um, we went with Juan Carlos Quatorio, who I've worked with on books in the past, and he's done a great job on, on Red Hot Number 2, and we just got that out, and it's uh, just in the last month or so come out at Comixology. So, Sweet. Uh, another one of my books at Comixology, you can read Red Hot Number 1 there, and now Number 2, and, and some great reviews are coming out. And what's funny to me is I was kind of a Marvel kid growing up, but I keep getting, the books keep getting compared to like DC's legacy series, like JSA and stuff like that. Which Interesting. I don't have a problem with. No, I don't have a problem God with, no, but it's just no. kind of funny. Yeah, it's really. Kind of funny. Given you think that you would be espousing the Marvel aesthetic in your in your storytelling through through the sequential art medium, but that's not the case. I think some of the flaws the characters have, though, are are kind of Marvel. Like I think you're you're the sum of all the stuff that you've read. You know, you can't help that. So. Sure, sure, yep. And 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 then as you write it, you you add to the conversation and and make some very cool stuff happen. That's awesome. Very cool. So, what about you? Conventions? Are you going to make it to Balticon this year? I'm hoping to be at Balticon. I haven't firmly committed, but I, I'm planning on it at this point. And I also just got invited to Aresia for the first time. Oh, wow. So that's going to be fun. That's the big convention in Boston on Martin Luther King weekend coming yeah. up. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm going to be a panelist at, at Aresia this year for the very first time, which is, is very cool. So my thanks to them for the invite there. Outstanding. Very cool. Well, Dan, Mike, I will make sure all of that fabulosity gets tucked neatly into the liner notes so our listeners can make with the clicky click and find all that fabulous stuff out there on Tay Interwebs. Now, here's what I'd like to do right now, though, is, is you know, we're going to take a pause. We'll give some podcast airtime to another fabulous podcast or an ebook or a Kickstarter or who knows, a story bundle. Anything's possible. Uh, and, and when we come back, uh, Mike, Dan, I would love to workshop a story with you dudes. What do you say? I can do that. Sounds good. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dan. I appreciate you. Uh, you know, getting getting fired up for the process, dude. <laughs> yeah, sure. What the fuck? I'm here. Yeah, I'll, I'll brainstorm a story. Sure. <laughs> cool. You guys just kick back, relax. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. I promise. If I have to drag Sawyer by his heels, we will be right back. <laughs> Once upon a time, there lived a witch named Alba. I am afraid chiropractic isn't covered for centaurs. Who had an apprentice called Magnus. Your neighborhood is full of smug, smart-ass woodland creatures, and they all hate me. And a fairy assistant named Holly. The team that cares! The team that heals! Together! And together, they tended to the king. I will not live with snakes on my head. The queen. How dare you address me like that? And all the people of the little kingdom of Farloria. I want a test for fatsoplasia. Alba, I think I have the plan. The plague, you say? Alba Salix's Royal Physician. A fairy tale comedy for the ear from Forgery League. Visit forgeryleague.com. Just fill out this patient information form and Alba will see you in a minute.
Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the reason why you're here and the reason why we're here, the story workshop. And that doesn't happen without a brave and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly up to the writer's chair to set the table for our brainstorming feast. And friends, our guest writer has lived in Chicago, Rome, and New York State, where she currently resides. Uh, She has a degree in architecture from Notre Dame and a PhD in education from the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's a copy editor and proofreader right now, but she has been a production editor, a research assistant, an algebra teacher, a waitress, a receptionist, and an architect in training. Now, she's nailed NaNoWriMo three times, and last year's 50,000 words turned into a finished manuscript last June that she's currently revising. And now... She's looking to write a sequel, which brings her to this august literary constellation. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Monica Rodriguez. Monica, you have clearly led a full life with, with many more <laughs> adventures to come, but it is never easy to step forward and offer up your baby for scrutiny and discussion. So, so hats off to you and much gratitude for your courageous uh, uh, initiatives, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, now, real quick, before we dive into this, what is an architect in training? What does that entail? Uh, basically, once you have your degree, you're qualified to work with an architect, but you're not licensed. Oh, okay. So you're basically a glorified draftsperson. <laughs> and the, the test that you have to take to be licensed is like 12 parts. Wow. And they give the test like once a year, and no one ever passes more than a few parts each time. So it's like, how many years am I going to wait to be licensed and be able to do my own stuff? Meh. <laughs> I'm Try moving on, else. moving on. Yeah. God, that sounds tougher than the, the the bar exam to become a lawyer for crying out loud. Yeah, it was. It seems kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know, you are building the buildings that people are living in and shit. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know. I kind of want, want them to fall apart. So. Exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm kind of down with that. Well, that you know, I understand. Time to move on, and move on you have, and and moving on has brought you here. So let's get down to this. Now you know how this works, Monica. We give you five to eight minutes. Introduce us to the the story. Give us a tagline and the themes of the story. Uh, tell us about the world. Uh, introduce us to the characters, give us those basic tent poles of the story, and we will launch into a brainstorming froth the likes of which God has never seen before. Yes, that was a Dune reference for those of you. David Lynch Dune reference, so boo! (laughs) All right, Monica, I'm I'm getting out of the way, ma'am. The mic is all yours. Okay, right now the title of this is Sequel to Bulletproof. (laughs) Uh, So... Any ideas are welcome. Uh, Bulletproof is a novel I'm currently revising. It's something along the lines of a sci-fi thriller intended for an adult audience. Justine has just learned that her father is alive. She grew up believing he died so she could stay free. Her best chance to find him means working with the man who hunted her for decades for her special ability. She must decide whether to work with him to get the answers to the questions she's had all her life. This sequel is about how one's past does not have to determine your future. Justine will learn that she can determine who she is and how she lives. Her ability, her past, what other people have done to her, do not decide how she lives her life. 
The theme of the first book, Bulletproof, was we are stronger together than alone. Justine had to learn it was okay to lean on others and that sometimes trying to solve her problems by herself was the harder way. I'm trying to take this a step further. She's adjusting to having friends who rely on her and to relying on them. She no longer has to worry so much about being caught. Suddenly there are doors open to her that were closed before. But she feels confined by her past, what she knows and doesn't know, and what she feels is dictated by the ability she has. The story is set in New York City in the present or near future. Justine came to New York City nearly four years ago because it was a city she could get lost in. It's the longest time she spent in any one place aside from her teen years she spent in Chicago. Justine's father conducted genetic engineering on himself as part of a government program to create enhanced humans. A genetic mutation was passed on to Justine, who was born with a telekinesis that allows her to apply force to objects without touching them, moving objects and stopping objects in motion, including bullets. Her friend Quinn was experimented on in the first book and will develop the beginnings of the same ability. The characters. The primary protagonist goes by the alias Justine Bernard. Resilient, determined, stubborn, she tends to want to do things herself. She wants to do good and for her ability to have a purpose. She has extremely limited exposure and familiarity with technology, having shunned all things that might track her identity or location. Her years of self-imposed isolation have left her somewhat socially awkward, reluctant to ask for help, and a bit paranoid. She lived for decades on the edge of society to avoid discovery until she was discovered which began the events of the first book. She fled the city, but returned when Quinn was kidnapped, for the first time risking her freedom for the sake of another. She now has to face the scary reality of her feelings and her need for friends in her life. In the sequel, while she'll be focused on learning about where she came from, she will learn that she can decide where she's going. Her friends are few. Detective Quinn Duncan, who was captured and experimented on in Bulletproof, will start to develop the ability Justine has. He takes his responsibilities seriously and aims to protect the people in his life, but his fear of losing them leads him to be controlling. Caden Duncan, Quinn's brother, helped Justine rescue Quinn in Bulletproof. He's intelligent and resourceful, but doesn't think highly of himself. He wants to live in a way that he can be proud of, but he's plagued by past mistakes and fears he'll never measure up to Quinn's standards. At the start of the sequel, he's feeling a bit purposeless, and he's fallen for Justine. She has also developed a soft spot for him after his display of loyalty. Agent Larry Hollister, the primary antagonist of Bulletproof, will be on Justine's side this book, though she hardly sees it that way. He wants to stop Moretti, who he'd worked with in Bulletproof, from using the sample of Justine's DNA he stole. To Hollister, the best use of Justine's ability is in defense of the country. He respects the ability and is protective of Justine. After decades of searching for her, he's even a bit obsessed and can't stand the idea that she won't work with him in the end. He has information on her father having worked with him and might be willing to trade the information for Justine's help. The primary antagonist is Salvatore Moretti, a ruthless businessman with a lucrative business in medical technology. He uses the latest advancements to develop elite medical equipment such as prostheses. He had created his business out of a desire to do good. His father's failed businesses spurred him to do better, be more successful, be more respected by his colleagues, even feared. He rewards loyalty and hard work among his employees, but now he puts profits above all else, remembering too clearly the poverty he experienced growing up. 
the story. For the primary conflict, Moretti has stolen a sample of Justine's DNA from Agent Hollister and uses it to give her ability to his subjects, who have his special prosthesis implanted in them. He replicates her ability, planning to sell them as an elite army to the highest bidder. All Justine wants is to find her father, get her questions answered, and live her own life. But she can't allow her ability, which she believes should be used for good purposes, to become a weapon. This threatens her sense of self and purpose. Among her obstacles is that she's not used to living in the world as part of it. She's not a team player. She spent years on the run from Agent Hollister, who now comes to her for help. The cost of not helping him is not only letting Moretti do horrifying things with her DNA, but losing a promising lead to her father. She also has to deal with Quinn and the relationship that's grown between them. Although he's unsure what's been done to him and worries about the consequences, Justine knows. Despite her efforts, he became the lab rat she always feared to be. She feels responsible. She explains the ability to him, but he refuses to believe until it manifests. The emotional fallout from all this comes between them and things get rocky. So act one, Justine learns from Hollister that Moretti has stolen a sample of her DNA from him. He wants her to help him stop Moretti from using it on his test subjects. She refuses. She just wants to find her dad. He agrees to help her find him. He knows where he is. If she brings him to Quinn, he'd like to see how his ability has developed. She refuses again. In Act 2, things start to get vague. Moretti gives the DNA to one of his test subjects with great results. Justine agrees to work with Hollister in exchange for help finding her father. At some point, Justine meets her father, which doesn't go as planned. He thinks she should be working with them instead of running from them. He's happy she's all right, but after 20 years, he sees her more as a result of an experiment than a daughter. For Act 3, what I'm planning is that Justine will fight the people Moretti created. I'm not sure where her father stands at this point on her side or Moretti's. Justine's arc will conclude with her being able to set aside her past and move forward with her life in a way she decides. She'll learn she can define her own life. Her past doesn't matter. As for the ending, somebody's going to die. <laughs> somebody's gonna die. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, at least one. At least one. If if not, we'll see how big the body count gets. That's awesome. Yeah. Excellent pitch, Monica. Thank you. Now, what are you hoping to get out of the next you know, 45 minutes or so of brainstorming awesomeness? I have two major concerns. The first should be pretty obvious. The second and third acts are very vague. Um, in the first act, Justine's focused on finding her father. She wants to know more about her past. I need to figure out how to get to the end point I'm planning uh, to where Justine is either at peace with her past or sets it aside to face her future, determine it for herself. Does this mean her father has to die for her to relinquish her entire past or somehow she can't get all the answers she, to the questions she has and has to accept that? The other big role uh, question I have is the role for her father. Um, I've explored his backstory extensively, but I haven't settled on if if he's on her side, to, despite not seeing eye to eye on how to use her ability. Um, what does that do for the relationship? Is he obsessed with creating the superhuman he originally aimed for and uh, decides to work with Moretti to finish what he started? Um, maybe that's an example for Justine and... Uh, she finally decides to set aside her past, okay. look to the future. 
I think we can help with that. I think we can definitely help with that. Um, But before we do, we we need to cover our ass. Uh, 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 (laughs) Master Luoma, would you be so kind as to do the ass covering for this episode? Yes, our our patented disclaimer. Indeed. Monica, you are about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. And it's important that you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Dan might be complete bullshit. This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside, okay? Sounds awesome. Fabulous. (laughs) Very good. We're all off the hook. (laughs) Let the brainstorming begin. And it always begins with a quick once around the table, just a very brief uh, uh, reflection on on first impressions of the story idea, the story pitch, and any questions of clarification uh, that that is essential to understanding the story so we can brainstorm this bad boy. And we always start with our guest host. So, Dan Sawyer, would you be so kind as to kick us off? What were your first impressions? impressions of Monica's story pitch and what any what are any questions you might have uh, for clarification um let's see my first impression is that it's uh it's way more developed than I would be comfortable writing <laughs> <laughs> well it is a sequel so she's already written one book no no, so. no 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 it's not that it's she's got all of act one and large bits of act two and three um sketched out okay. she's she knows enough about all of the characters to just run with it and her subconscious will make up the rest. I'm actually a little worried that she'll overdevelop it to the point where um, it becomes impossible to write. Well, Dan, understand that we ask all of our writers to come up with this pitch. Oh, yeah, no, whether no, 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 whether it's that. going to stay that way or not is largely dependent on our input moving forward. So so don't oh, yeah, let that no, concern you. Don't let that concern you. But um, that said, the uh, one thing uh, that jumped out at me is the villain's motivation may not wind up parsing. Um, mm-hmm. It's because he's the he's the CEO of a large biomedical company. Poverty is not going to be a problem for him, no matter how <laughs> how scared he is of poverty as a person. The um, bottom line of his company is not going to affect his salary. It might affect his stock vestment, but um, it won't affect his salary unless he pisses the board off and they fire him, which they can do even if he owns the company. Um, mm. So the because of the way corporations are structured, um, which is deliberately to distance the stockholders from the um, money, that's the whole point of a corporation, is um, you may need to um, delve into a little more of the uh, politics behind why he's afraid in this particular instance, because that motivation is not going to be sufficient to be plausible. Mm-hmm. Well, it could be yeah. that he's he's uh, uh, you know this this experiment that he's delving into is is expressly against the board's uh, uh, bylaws or something. You know, if he if he gets discovered, he's he's hosed. He's he's out the he's out the door. Uh, so we can talk about that. That's a good point. Let's stick a pin in that and and circle back around because I, I I think Mike and I will both have some uh, ideas or at least some more questions about the 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 antagonists' uh, motivations. What else you got, Dan? Um, other than that, it like I said, it's that. You've got so much here that it's almost overdeveloped. It it sounds great. 
<laughs> well, and every everything's been written. Let me let me just affirm everything has been written in light pencil here. And Monica comes on board mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. that we can gender flip characters. We can completely gut everything and start over again. So so don't let what Monica has put out there uh, uh, limit you, Dan. As as we as we move forward into the brainstorm, okay? I, I've been in, here. In before, fact, you know? I, I want to point out that I don't even feel like the first book is totally set in stone um, because I'm revising. So I've already changed one factor of the first book because of something I wanted to do in the second book that I decided a couple weeks ago. So this is really, really fluid. Very fluid. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, let's turn the mic over to Mike Luoma then, because I still never get tired of saying that. (laughs) Mike. It's getting old, Dave. It's getting old. I know it is. It is. And it still delights me. (laughs) What are are your uh, first impressions of of Monica's story? And what are your questions, sir? Like Dan was saying, it sounds like a very cool, very developed story already, which is kind of neat. But my first thought is as we were getting towards the end and she was like, somebody has to die. And my thought was, well, I'm sorry, Quinn, but it, it probably should be Quinn that has to die here. <laughs> yeah. I've been kind of thinking of that. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. But, you. but you know, I, I think there's an opportunity here for misdirection in a couple ways that are, that can pay off nicely, including with the, the, the misdirection of Quinn looking like he's going to be the prince. He she rides off into the sunset with. And then when you, mm-hmm. when you, lose him at the end it's like it's going to just take the the oxygen out of people's lungs like how how could she do that don't kill <laughs> quinn and, yeah. but you know you, you also have caden waiting in the wings there too with his flame kind of burning so there's there's a dynamic there that's kind of interesting as well yeah yeah, I agree. I agree. There's there's a lot of moving parts and and they can be shifted, tweaked or or snipped as the case may be in a lot of different ways. So, and, yeah. And and the other opportunity I saw for misdirection is with her father. I mean, mm. you can build that up to be an expectation that she's got that just couldn't be lived up to or even that she knows she's got an expectation that can't be lived up to, so she tries to moderate that expectation. And then when she finally encounters him, and he's still a disappointment on our moderation. That I think can can be an interesting dynamic there, where she has to kind of just get rid of that part of her past and say, you know, I was hoping for so much more out of this, but this guy's kind of a loser, and what he did to me now, it doesn't seem like that cool at all. Yeah, yeah. And it occurred to could, me, you could go, you could actually go entirely the other way with it, where he is everything she expected, and that makes her angry. Yeah, <laughs> there you because go. if if you're searching for someone like that, who's basically abandoned you and they accept you with open arms, the obvious question is, where the fuck have you been? Yeah, well, and, and she she believes he died for her to keep her free. Uh, uh, and then the discovery that he's still alive. Yes, that would absolutely call into question. What the hell? Where have you, if you're still alive, why didn't you reach out to me? So yeah, there's there's lots of food for there, and that also occurred to me that you know, Hollister could be a, a, a surrogate father figure, which is kind of intriguing because he was the antagonist in the first book, uh, uh, but he he has all the the earmarks for you know wanting the best for you know in this case the country, uh, uh, but also coming around to 
admiring and valuing Justine uh, uh, and and wanting to to protect her and also, you know, see her achieve her potential. So there's a potential there for, you know, a, a battling paternal figure that could be resolved at the end as well. And it could end up being a conflict between her father and, and Hollister, maybe. I don't know. Um, I got to say, uh, uh, Monica, I, I love near future or present day sci-fi. Uh, just because it allows you to explore the the very very strange, exciting, and and in a lot of ways alarming terrain that is happening around us right now. So so that alone really kind of hooked me. And it sounds like the the powers that you're manifesting. I mean, there is a speculative nature with this whole telekinetic aspect, but you've kept a lid on it. You've kept it very tight and close, uh, uh, and that's very cool too because it it either a opens you for a very measured development because obviously if this is possible in one person it's possible in others and and in fact Moretti's banking on that uh, uh, but it could also manifest in different ways and we could see the beginning of you know a very cool not a superhero but a a, a powered altered genetic sci-fi thing as the story moves forward and I'm, and I'm not sure if that's where you're going but that's one of the many possibilities to be explored i did have a couple of questions um you say uh, uh her father was genetically engineered uh, uh to create enhanced humans who did that he did it to himself so he's a genetic scientist he, he's a genetic scientist permissions were getting slow and he's this very ambitious and to the point of reckless kind of guy. And when it looked like they weren't going to get approval, this was his way of putting them in a corner. I did it to myself. It's done. I didn't violate anything because it was the permissions on yourself. So he did it to himself. Okay. To, to enhance. So he has some enhancement in the quote unquote standard way of uh, stronger, faster. Haven't really settled on exactly, but um, more in the physical realm. Um, so creating then, those enhanced humans, he was initially successful. Yes. So why didn't um, it become a thing? Well, actually, it has. He, in the, all this time, he has stayed with the program. They just didn't let him stray far because he was basically one of their products now. And he basically gave his family the signal when he thought that they had discovered about Justine because she was conceived after he did this and that's how she was born with this, uh, to get out of town so that they couldn't find her because she, he didn't want her to end up a lab rat. Okay. Um, but are so other people then- continue. Well, yes, he has gone on and experimented on people, but, or, you know, and worked on DNA. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit more limited- because it's done in an experimental fashion. But. Okay, but there are other enhanced humans out there. Yes. Okay, and and what was the company that he was doing this for? Who who owns him now? Department of Defense. Okay, so the DOD has enhanced humans, yes. enhanced soldiers. Okay. Yes. Awesome. Um, that's interesting. We can play with that. Uh, why was Quinn experimented on at the end of the first book? What was it about Quinn that made him a candidate for this? Basically, uh, Hollister, who was trying to, she, he was trying to, quote unquote, capture Justine. In his mind, she will willingly go with him to work with him because it's the best way. And she 
you know, kind of slip through his fingers. And he basically needed bait. Um, there's more reasons why him, he was also um, finding out about certain dead bodies that were going to be traced back to their business. And so to get him out of the way in that respect, he was kidnapped. But then he's like, I'm not going to waste this guy. Let me use him. And uh, he he has a few other subjects that he's been trying to recreate Justine. It's not until he gets a blood sample of her that he's successful. And so Quinn is actually the second one that he used it on. But he was just going to test it on him and then kill him. Okay. Um, uh, a flag that went up for me was, uh, uh, well, actually, let me ask this question first. What is Justine doing at the beginning of the story. Now, all this stuff happens and Hollister comes in and says, oh, Moretti's got your DNA sample. He's going to create super telekinetic soldiers. You've got to help me. No, I won't. What is she doing before then? What is she, what is what is what is Justine doing then before Hollister shows up? So you mean basically how the first book ended and the second book begins? More how the second book begins. She's basically regrouping. Um, they just had escaped from... Hollister and they're kind of all in very different places from them where they were so she but she cannot let go of the idea the last thing Hollister said to her is your father would be so disappointed and he's like he's alive Um, bastard (laughs) yeah oh he knew exactly what he was doing so she's what's her objective at this point I mean she's yes okay so we busted out of this thing Quinn's safe yay and 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 so we pick it up you know a few days weeks months later what what's her goal before Hollister shows up and 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 tries to recruit her find her father find her father yeah right so that's what she's doing when hollister shows up yeah got it it's like i have to find a way to find him he's alive yeah that's her sole focus then that that i would recommend that some kind of op that she's on with with quinn and caden maybe uh uh, to uh unearth some information or or find a clue or whatever something so we can going through old photographs with facial recognition software trying to find them i was thinking actually more aggressive so we can see the powers in play you know, some sort of op that involves uh, a conflict where we can remind the reader that Justine has these powers and that Quinn and Caden are still on board and and here to help and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and then also affirm that, you know, she's willing to go to great lengths to get that information about her father. I think that uh, that actually brings me to a question that just popped into my head. Um, the nature, the particular nature of the telekinesis, how powerful are we talking and what level of um, control over the power are we talking about? Um, okay, that's interesting you asked that because I just um, was posed with the question by someone, you know, can she stop a car? So she can stop a bullet, but the, I mean, and the bullet's faster, but it's a smaller mass. So I was trying to figure out how the force of a car compared. I haven't. It was Dan like a bunch of physics <laughs> questions. Force on equals that. mass times acceleration. Right. So I could just do the math, and but yeah. I just didn't. But you know, the mass of a car and how fast it's going, I have to compare to that. And it sounds um, like basically she just sucks the kinetic energy out of a thing. Is is what she's doing? She, she has the ability to project force that counteracts it. So an <laughs> oncoming bullet will meet the force that she's putting out and stop. Okay. Um, and that way, it's something that it's at rest, say a coffee mug, she can just kind of mentally give it a shove. 
Um, she it is easier to push than to pull. And she does have limits. And at the end of the first book, she does shove a car, but it's the first time she tries something that big. And uh, it moved a little bit. What's the most frightening thing about the potential for a telekinetic? That the force coming on will be too great. So that if she's trying to stop something, say a moving car or whatever, and she can't. So think of it uh, from a strategic angle. The greatest danger that would be posed by a telekinetic isn't that they can throw a car off a cliff. It's that they could pinch your carotid artery shut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought this is where you were going. <laughs> and kill somebody from a distance without leaving any, any forensic no evidence at all. At all. Yep. I was thinking or, or trachea. Mm-hmm. Yep. Force choke. Okay. That never occurred to me. <laughs> but if, you know, carotid artery, you, kill you, you go down, you, it, Two two minutes of that, and you're just you're completely dead. There's no bringing you back. So that's that's one thing. And, and the whole yeah. the whole modern world, all of the most dangerous things that can happen in the modern world, almost all of them are small events like that. Stopping a bullet mm-hmm. is impressive. Mm-hmm. Flipping the switch, uh, flipping the arm switch on a sidewinder missile from a distance, that's frightening. See, Monica, this is why I invited Mike and Dan onto this conversation, (laughs) because for some reason they think about this stuff. And (laughs) I kind of figured there would be there'd be some interesting possibilities that could evolve. And I'm sure Hollister or her dad have also considered this. Certainly the DOD would have a think tank once they know this is possible uh, uh, to contemplate all the possibilities that someone uh, uh, would have for that. So, well, let's let's dive into the brainstorm proper then. Let's let's step back and decide where we want to dive into this story. Dan, where where do you want to start in terms of transforming this raw idea into a powerhouse of literary awesomeness? Um, I think the stakes, this is a, this is a story that you could, you could go sort of genre wise. You could go a number of different directions. You could go X-Men action movie on one end, or you could go, um, something really quiet and terrifying on the other end or any sort of other direction, figuring out what your stakes are will help decide where to invest the reader's attention. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where Dan, just for you. And again, obviously this is not your story. It's Monica's story, but just from your aesthetic, where would you build those stakes? Where would those stakes rest? Um, even if I was building towards really high, like save the world type of stakes, I would invest most of my attention on the small terrifying stuff because that I'm a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock and I deeply believe in completely fucking with my audience. <laughs> and You know, the idea of the idea of a plane crashing or a nuclear bomb going off is not going to keep most people up at night. But the notion that that prowler outside my window could stop my breathing without coming through the window, Hmm. that could keep people up at night. That's an intriguing theme. Yeah, I like that because and 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 it, it brings brings her level of personal responsibility a lot closer because most people will have a serious inhibition about wreaking mass destruction. You know, it's noisy, it's it's spectacular, it gets you noticed. But if she's got this power that she can wield without being noticed and move, it, she's, she's, she's got a way to move lever points in the world without anyone knowing about it. And that's a lot more tempting than doing something spectacular 
where people will notice. I like that because it really, because you've got these heavy hitters in here. You've got the DOD, you've got this multi-billion dollar biotech company involved and, and that, you know, feeds the, 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 the big dramatic, you know, blockbuster summer movie vibe, but focusing, you know, maybe, maybe Monica, you know, at one point she, she touches Quinn and, and in, inadvertently maybe not breaks his arm, but you know, stops all feeling in in his in his chest, or or he collapses and goes, "What the hell was that?" And raising those questions of control and intimacy, and and the potential, you know, it's kind of like you know, Rogue from the X Men, one very compelling character because she can't mm-hmm. touch anyone, mm-hmm. and working that similar vibe to explore Justine's struggle with becoming what she's become because you say it yourself she's a freak she mm-hmm. is somebody that people don't trust and you know maybe Quinn and Caden don't completely trust her especially if there's a few mishaps early in the book and and that I think is a very cool arc to to deeply seat around these larger players playing Mike what do you think Are, is is that something that appeals to you I think so. I, I I think there might be room in the story for the the larger versus smaller kind of thing to play a, yeah. a role in the story dynamic. Where you know maybe it's uh, Moretti is is only thinking in terms of the largeness. You know he's only thinking in terms of super soldiers, and maybe it was uh, Jack Justine's father who was thinking, no, no, we take this small. And so maybe you have that dynamic playing out with characters, you know, representing those ideas in the story itself Nice. and kind of switching that around, you know, where at the beginning of things, that's what you're thinking is, oh, we're going to see an army of super soldiers. Whereas Justine and, and her group start thinking smaller and smaller and what can we do? Right. And I guess the, the question I'd have too is, is can she do this remotely or does she have to be line of sight to do her telekinesis? She does. I, I hadn't really thought about the line of sight issue, but I, she would have to have line of sight, but she also has to have some proximity effort. She can't do it from a mile away. Okay. Yes. No, no, I just wanted to <laughs> yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just good to know the limitations of, of yeah. the, sure. the telekinesis as you're defining it. So. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and just real quick, you mentioned that Moretti is putting prosthetics into the, the people that he's investing with, with Justine's powers. What are these prosthetics that he's uh, putting into them? Uh, yeah, this actually kind of started the whole thing was, and this is a, a real advancement that they've done with prostheses where they now can, um, put a neural implant in your brain so you can control the prosthetic mentally and mm-hmm. obviously very new right now. And of course, my idea was that before they discovered it, and then they discovered it. So I have to hurry up and write these two briefs. <laughs> they keep discovering what I'm saying is the future. Uh, the challenge um, of the near future. I writer. understand yeah. that one. <laughs> yes. So so they can already do this. Um, but that you know that was what he had been um, helping to advance was these elite like. It, in his backstory is how he started putting computers in wheelchairs. So he tried to be very, very at the forefront of this stuff. Um, so are these, so are these like battle armor? Are very, okay. well, his prostheses are, they're, they're for the general public, but they're very elite. Um, and, but they're, and advanced and, but government contracts are very lucrative and uh, reliable. So he, is has always been looking for that. And, and that, how did he find out about Justine? Um, kind of by accident. 
you know, a, a lackey of his, uh, the very first scene, this employee of Moretti shoots at Quinn, but they are along, Justine is there. That's coincidence. That's like, I try to limit the coincidence to that. And so she, she stops him from getting killed. Okay. And so this guy actually pursues Justine to prove what he saw. And um, so this is a lackey of Moretti that saw Justine's power, yeah. pursues it and says, holy crap, it's real and goes yeah. and tells his boss. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Got it. That seemed, uh, that is, that is a coincidence. And I'd kind of like to make that something a little firmer. Well, that's not how he gets the DNA. He is actually working. Hollister is using, has known, uh, I forget how now. <laughs> He's working. <laughs> I've changed so many things in, in this sure, sure. story. So it's, it's sometimes hard to keep track of the backstory. But Hollister is using Moretti's lab because he was let go by his people. And so he's using Moretti's lab in the first book as just a place to work. And so that's how they, but Moretti doesn't have anything to do with Justine. He's pursuing, he's tracking Quinn because he's investigating the, the bodies that have been left behind by some other work. Um, Quinn just happens to be connected with Justine. That sounds a little convoluted. I'm wondering if 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 Hollister is using Moretti's lab as a part of his pursuit of Justine, then mm-hmm. you know maybe you know maybe Hollister and Moretti are allies, friends, companions, uh, uh, and Hollister trusts Moretti, uh, and he shouldn't. And Moretti has secretly been, been, you know, sorting through Hollister's files and finds this thing and steals it. And that creates a breach between Moretti and Hollister, which is the impetus. Hollister realizes he's put Justine in danger through his lack of, of foresight. And so he's driven now to, to help Justine to cover up his own mess. And now Hollister has more skin in the game, uh, uh, as a motivation to, to align with Justine and, and fix what's wrong. Something to think about, something to ponder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are allies in the way they're business partners to begin with. Yeah. So that this totally works. Yeah. It's a little cleaner explanation. Right. That's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking. So we've got, so so let's, let's recap here real quick. So we've got this very cool, small story of, of the, you know, the terror of having this power and the discovery that it's not the, the explosive hurling cell towers off of buildings that makes telekinesis frightening. It's the very subtle, uh, 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 and, and very lethal, potential it has uh, uh that and justine is is realizes she's a weapon now and that's horrifying you've got hollister dealing with his inadvertent betrayal of justine and and moretti's machinations now dan you had you had invoked uh, uh the the motivation of the antagonist and I'd, I'd like you to go ahead and explore that a little bit because really moretti's ambition here is really kind of the key that is is going to be the hard wall against the which these characters are going to be tested so what are your thoughts on on Moretti as as an antagonist, what can we do to, to make him uh, stronger, sharper, and and more more of an antagonist for for Justine? Well, depending on how uh, sympathetic um, 
you want him to be. He could have um, he could have ambitions rooted in a genuine patriotism. He could have ambitions rooted in he sees this contract as a step toward advancing research for curing a terminal illness his daughter has or something like that. Okay. Um, if uh, if greed really is the thing, then um, then his company should be under some kind of threat. Like um, he's been cooking the books, and if they lose this contract, that will come out, and he'll not only be financially ruined, but he's in danger of incarceration. And um, the company, yeah, you know, and we could do both. Yeah. He and could, you could do both. He could, he be, could be cooking the books in order to get uh, extra research money to save his daughter, and you know, exactly. That kind of and another aspect that could play into it is in terms of what Mike was saying about um, you having this conflict between people who see the value being the telekinetics control over the very small versus the very large. Moretti could have a uh, sidekick who disagrees with him about this and um, Moretti can't see it and the sidekick can cite in a way to bring it home to your audience that this is a real world problem. Moretti, er, his sidekick can say, look, the most dangerous thing that ever happened in geopolitics is the invention of the USB drive. You know, it wasn't the invention of the nuclear weapon, the USB drive, you know, some government clerk goes in and steals classified files and leaks them to the enemy. You know, right. these, these little things are the, are the dangerous things. And that's um, cool. That's a nice contrast to mm -hmm. the usual. I mean, as soon as you hear about a powered sci-fi thriller, you're thinking explosions and buildings <laughs> and stuff. And it, I think that's very cool. And we could have that, but mm -hmm. making the, the, the foundation. Making them the consequence of something very small and yes. innocent. Something. Yes, mm. exactly. Exactly. Give them a lot more dramatic punch. But uh, yeah, the, the, but if you get the right motivation for your villain, you've got a lot more room to room to play with your audience and a lot more latitude as to how you can bring the punch about. And you can also, if you've got a multi multi tiered motivation, like he's been cooking the books in order to fund a secret project to save the life of his daughter and a bunch of other people that have this rare genetic condition. That's absolutely horrible, but isn't common enough to be worth large scale investment, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, you can reveal that by stages. And so you get a late, you know, late in the novel, you get this punch that completely changes your opinion of the villain right before he gets killed or ruined or defeated or whatever. That's awesome. And, and have the, the army, not, not that I've oh, ever done that. Before. No, certainly <laughs> not. No, but, and you could have, if, if that was the case, then the army, the quote unquote army that he's building with these prostheses and infusing with, uh, Justine's powers are, people afflicted by that illness and that could be a thread you know as they encounter these soldiers of Moretti's you know maybe they discover you know maybe Hollister you know they get a blood sample and they run a sit analysis and, oh this guy has you know this blah blah disease which you know would have to tie somehow with with telekinetics you know maybe maybe something about the, that ability also allows for an activation of a part of the brain that handles that 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 controls the reason for this disease and that's the cure 
and and that can be a hook then that leads them to understanding, ah, it's Moretti and this is his real motivation, blah, blah, blah. It also gives them a shortcut to finding candidates that he might target. For yes, yes. And then get ahead of him in the process because he, he needs more people to, to run this process on. Oh, I love that. I love that. Mike, where's your head going right now? What What, what are your thoughts about the father in this in all of this? I'm I'm just wondering where he's been and and what he's been doing. He just yeah. it, it seems like he's just very conveniently reappearing, and um, I just feel like he needs kind of a little more rooting, a more of a backstory to explain where he went. You know, because he's he's just been gone. What do you think? I, I, see, now I was thinking of that too, and I was thinking that that he has continued. You know, he he. Uh, died quote unquote to keep justine free uh, uh we we learn now that he hasn't now now monica is he still with the dod has he like died in in terms of uh, of a cia black bag uh, uh thing and is really still working for the dod he's still he's still with the dod he's still okay. with the program and he's trying to advance the program well then then it seems like uh, uh you know part of his terms to continue working with the DOD as as the dude who knows all the secrets is that you leave my daughter alone. Exactly. I will, I will die. You leave her alone. So her, and that's that's an interesting parallel. And and it, this might be burdening the story too much. I don't know. Uh, and Dan and Michael ask you, but if if there's the Moretti issue and and the exploitation of her genetics and then you've also got the the dod development because clearly they've moved forward with this they have to have uh, mm-hmm. uh it can't be just we're still where we were at the end of book two at, at the end of book one in book two they've moved forward they have super soldiers and they are poised to do something I don't know what, but it needs to be something that's tied into uh, uh, the Moretti angle so that we can weave them in gracefully. Dan, you got any thoughts along those lines? Well, I suppose it depends on what kind of super soldiers we're talking about. If you want, um, you know, if you're talking enhanced strength and sort of the classic Nietzsche and Superman angle, um, the obvious question is why not just do, do that with robots like we're starting to do now in the real world? Um, but what if you've got uh, super soldiers that are hyper resistant to radiation and thus you can actually send soldiers into a blast zone after you've after you've dropped a tactical nuke or that are hyper resistant to certain kinds of chemical warfare or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've got something like that, you don't just have people you can send into strategic battle situations but you got someone who's really resistant to radiation you've suddenly got a class that's advantaged in terms of being able to become astronauts or airline pilots or um, all sorts of other jobs that carry an inherently higher risk of exposure to that thing that they're resistant to sure Um, maybe they heal faster maybe that you know that may be one of the byproducts of the secret research to cure this other genetic disease is they heal a lot faster that and so the danger they represent immediately you know you hear super soldier and immediately you think big honking hulk with no brain that's going to come through and be a psycho as soon as they get out of the military or captain america or captain america but um that's the that's the low-hanging fruit that's the obvious scary thing but what if the scary thing is not that it's that they're going to completely change um, 
the labor market in some way, or they're going to um, allow humans to accomplish certain things that maybe um, the good guys think we're not ready for, or whatnot. Sure. Well, and the and the whole transhumanism thing. You know, maybe maybe Moretti's company, maybe the DoD needs. Uh, uh, some component that Moretti's company is providing to the DOD. Mm-hmm. And, and that could be part of the hook that, that leads Hollister and Justine to the ultimate stage. So, so the resolution of the Moretti story arc, however that happens is, you know, that you sort of feel like, well, God, that, you know, this is, the, we're, we're late in acts two early in act three and we've resolved the Moretti thing, but that unfolds this much larger issue of what the DOD is doing. And or maybe then, the problem, maybe the problem isn't the enhanced soldiers themselves, but the, um, you could have an in universe treaty, um, similar to the one that's being negotiated now about enhancing humans. That is an app. That's a, um, addition to the Geneva convention where enhanced soldiers aren't allowed. Nice. And so the problem, the problem wouldn't be the enhanced soldiers as such. It would be that the DOD has to kill them in order to prevent it getting loose. You know, when they're drummed out, when they're mustered out, they don't get to go home. They get clandestinely killed before anyone can find out what's been going on. Nice. You know, there could be some kind of like um, malfunction with the prosthetics that gives some kind of like biofeedback with the, the neural implant and, you know, fucks with these guys and makes them lose their shit in some way. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and that represents, see, I love that, that notion, Dan, of, of bringing in global treaties and a global vision of, uh, uh, of, of this, this whole genetic process. Cause that really makes it relevant and ties it into this world. And yeah, Mike, if, if, if there's something about this process, that's, that's, that's making these guys a liability and see Monica, and then here can be the thing. Maybe her dad, gives the kill order. Maybe he's the one that is actually killing these guys in the name of protecting the project. And that strikes home to her because she was a part of that project inadvertently, unintentionally, but it calls into question, does that mean you're going to kill me too, dad? Because I represent the same vulnerability to your program that these guys do. And that is Whoa. a serious, yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck. And, and you know, maybe the answer is yes. Or maybe that's a challenge, you know, that that's something maybe to explore as you write it. Because maybe he's wrestling with the same thing. Maybe he thought by, by dying and saying my daughter is off limits, she could be protected from this. But he realizes she can't. I was just thinking that maybe that's the foundation of Moretti's, like, split from his company or something. Is, is there the idea that... Um, the legal government things they were doing are now affected by this, this multinational treaty that they're part of or that we're a part of. And Moretti's like, well, screw that. I'm going to keep doing this thing that I've been developing, you know, nice. fuck the rest of you. I'm taking it off the books, mm. um, doing my thing. And he's the one that represent that, that exposes the DOD to danger. In, in, in pursuing his, his research, you know, the DOD has everything locked down. Moretti doesn't. And so in the process of him going off the books and going off the reservation, he exposes and puts in danger the whole DOD program, which then creates a path for, for Justine and Hollister to, to pursue and find her father. 
That's and awesome. It also gives you the option at the end of the book, if you want to extend it to a third book, of having Moretti in the end become a good guy. Yes, exactly. And maybe dad becomes the bad guy. Because dad know, wants them dead and Moretti wants to keep them alive. Yeah, because he's ultimately motivated by by just causes. Holy crap. Guys, I'm, I'm watching the clock and it's ticking down all too quickly. There's so much awesomeness to dive into. But I, I, I need to move us into this, into our final stage here, if I could. Um, so so this is this is one last trip around the table to, to give Monica uh, as much literary gold to shove in her pockets as possible. Final thoughts, ideas you didn't get to put out some some advice as she moves forward with this story send her off and on her way so she can write this dan we'll start with you sir final thoughts for monica um i would say as you write this um try to avoid low-hanging fruit because it's a uh, it's a genre that's exploding right now and go for the stuff that is most disturbing yeah. Um, even if it's not a disturbing book that gives you a lot of emotional punch with the readers, it gives you latitude, it creates investment, and it will make the ideas that you're playing with stick with the readers a lot longer. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Mike, what about you, sir? Final thoughts? I like the idea of turning the dad into the villain. Um, yeah, I do too. I know that Monica was looking for the, the real role for the father for for Justine's father and for him to first appear to be good and then appear to be bad and then appear to be good and then actually turn out to be really bad that that could be very effective you know in terms of her coming to be at peace with her past maybe she has to almost you know kill her father or or kill the ideas that she had of her father i'm not sure it's very buddhist something like that yeah yeah and 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 <laughs> and, and very very hero cycle too um Awesome. Very cool. And, and I will offer, uh, I'm actually going to recycle some, some advice, Monica. Uh, we recently had Gail Carriger on the show and, and she offered an alternative to the hero cycle, which was the heroine cycle, uh, or the Demeter, uh, uh, cycle, uh, which is an excellent structure for a, a feminine heroes cycle, which involves, uh, networking, and creating relationships and admitting when someone is wrong, when when they don't know something and proactively seeking help and a network and a communicate. They solve their problems by talking through and examining them with their group of people. And as you're looking at these, you know, as has been teased out in this in this fabulous brainstorm these awesome themes of of you know the father and and moretti's you know corruption and the larger uh, uh governmental and even global uh, potential crises that are involved uh, and then the smaller cycles within um, as as Justine moves through this uh, uh, she doesn't have to be an action hero and I don't think you're, you're you I don't think you, there's I haven't heard anything that makes you makes me think you're doing that with her uh, I just wanted to affirm the the fact that you've created this very authentic, uh, uh, individual who is going through some very unique challenges and using that, that heroin cycle as a possible mechanism for resolving those can turn 
all of the awesomeness that has already been put out and really create a benchmark story. So, so that's 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 my suggestion. God, this is if fast. if I could cut in real quick, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about you're talking about the um the team based uh, heroes cycle that uh, Gail was talking about. Mm-hmm. There's actually a document online that takes you through how the structure for a story like that works. It's called the Lester Dent Master Plot Formula. The Lester Dent oh. Master Plot Formula. Yeah. Awesome. Lester Dent, Lester Dent uh, the guy who wrote, who ghost wrote the Doc Savage novels, is the guy that reintroduced that way of telling stories from ancient Greece into modern uh, Western culture. Outstanding. Very cool. Yeah. Shit, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> Monica, I'll race you. <laughs> I'm Googling it now. <laughs> All right. Well, Monica, God, this has been awesome. Now, here's the deal. Uh, as it always is here on the roundtable, you write this, and it doesn't matter how it gets finished, but you put it up there, whether it's a PDF or or uh, on your website or a, a deal from a big six, big five, however the hell many there are, a publishing company out there, but get this out in the world and let people enjoy it and let it in, let it infect their mind and their awareness. And when you do that, let us know, because we will have you back and then we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the round table podcast. You down with that? Fantabulous. Fantabulous. I love that Absolutely word. Awesome. <laughs> I, I like that word. Uh, Monica, this has been awesome. You don't get story brainstorms full of so much froth with, with a weak tail. And you brought us some fine, fine food uh, for this one. And we so very much appreciate it. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate your time. This has been phenomenal. I have to go mop up my brains <laughs> our work is done here we ride off into the sunset awesome very cool well and 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 dan sawyer for the third time you continue to demonstrate the wisdom of our choice to bring veteran authors uh onto the story brainstorms to to infuse them with insight and experience and ideas and and that is exactly what you did thank you so much sir It's always loads of fun. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely, bud. And best of luck with all those fabulous things that you have going. We'll be keeping an eye out on Tay Interwebs uh, uh, for news and updates on all of that. And Mike Luoma, my my wingman, my uh, uh, brother in podcasting, uh, this has been superb as always. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to the next time, bud. Well, thanks again for having me, Dave. Um, You know, all this creative juice that's been flowing. I, I've been drinking it up. Now I need to get off and do some writing myself. <laughs> I know, right? And that's exactly how I feel at the end of every one of these. That's why I light up the ceremonial cigarette because it's like, holy crap. Uh, uh, and 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 that's the awesome thing about this is that, you know, as spent in, in rolling in those writerly juices as we are right now, uh, in seven days, it's going to start all over again. We're going to fire up another and, and bring another uh, fabulous guest host on to, to share wisdom and insights with our listeners and ourselves. We're going to bring a courageous guest writer on to toss a story bomb into the mix. There's going to be brainstorming and roundtable goodness for all. And I know it's seven days. It's a long time. Mike, help us out here, bud. Uh, uh, seven days. What do our listeners need to do to, to be, be good literary alchemists between now and then? Write down what you just got out of this thing that we just went through. If there are ideas in your head, write those down. 
and work on them over the next week and turn them into some gold of your own. Awesome. Yes. Or or, or just put them under little post-it notes on your computer screen. Absolutely. Yes. But write that shit down because doing so, <laughs> it sets up, it sets up uh, uh, an anchor for your imagination that you can come back to later. That's awesome. And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that surprise Christmas present at the back of the Christmas tree. Look for the fabulosity in the world. And if you look for it, dear friends, I promise you, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.